Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. We're back with Debbie Champion. Hi, Debbie. Hi. How are you? We're going to continue the conversation on creativity and brainstorming. Yeah. What about jury selection? What can we do creatively there? There's another a lawyer that I tried several cases with in, in Vordire. It was contributed to cause. It was a causation case primarily. And he did something, and I, I'm sure he probably picked it up from somebody else. The he water. got hey, the water. Yeah. And I've always been a little hesitant to do it. He, what he would do is he'd take a, three small water yeah. for it and three yeah. pours, and then you overflow it. And I thought, wow, that's a great a great way to do it. And what which pour caused the over? They all did. They all yeah. contributed. Why is yeah. that? And the reason I didn't is he. I've watched him do it a couple times, and both times he spilled water all over. <laughs> and, and of course, the judges, whoa, clean that up, and all this stuff. And I thought we lost a little of the impact there. And so the last, was it the last trial? And I did it. And what I did is I, I had a big aluminum pan that we have here in the office, and I put it under the table behind some boxes. And I had this, the, I had the stuff already set up in there. Well, I did it, but I poured it. And some well, well, did spill, but it went in the went yeah. in the pit. Oh, that's and it, good. I didn't spill it. That's what I yeah. was nervous about. Yeah. And I thought it was going to come across a little like corny or something, but it was. I just did it, and I just one guy just said, "Why?" And he that's because they all can. And it, well, I thought it worked pretty well. You at least made the point. Yeah. But it was something I picked up from somebody else. And, yeah. But you have to practice, and you had to make. Yes. Yeah. How many times have we seen people put something down that they say is not a fall risk, and then they fall over it, yeah. or yeah. they're using a product they say is not dangerous, and they end up doing something yeah. that misf- yeah. misfires or whatever happens? We all see those sorts of things. But I have seen people ask goofy things. In- oh, I see that all the time. I see it all the time. One guy you all know got up and asked the jury. About all about their TV shows they watched and all about their news they watched. It wasn't just to find out, okay, are you CNN or Fox? It went on and on, and that's all he asked. And then he said, yeah. I thought, I didn't get anything. I always, that. when that happens, I think they're either really smart and creative and I'm missing something, or they have no clue as to apparently, what they're doing. Apparently they had no clue. <laughs> and then on another one, I saw somebody, somebody went through and asked what their screensaver was. So I wouldn't even know what my screensaver is. I think it's some picture of a mountain. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't put it on there. <laughs> You're talking about jury selection. Yeah. And it seems like when I started, which is way back when, it seemed like the approach was to control things and not let things go crazy and to make sure you didn't have someone poison the yeah. jury. And nowadays, it's, it seems way different and it seems way more creative. We've had four episodes on Bordier, and it's clear that what we all do is to get it all out, get them talking. And you're serving not as a person controlling them at all, which would be antithetical to creativity, but it's right. to be the the facilitator of this catharsis, this huge group catharsis, and where it comes on out. I think it takes the biggest difficulty in Voidir. Some people can get people to open up and talk, and some people at least can't in the beginning and need to work on it. And the div- biggest difficulty is getting people to talk. And especially if you have... <laughs> or getting them to shut up. Yeah, or shut <laughs> Sometimes the judge steps in and goes, don't ask that person any yeah. more questions. Yeah. I'm not asking them any more questions. They just keep talking. <laughs> but if you have a really difficult issue that people are going to be uncomfortable talking about, you have to be creative to find a way 
to coax them into or shame that I'd somehow getting them willing to talk about it and be open about it. And then once a couple people do it, more people do it. I might spend more time thinking about how I can get people open and talking and admitting based on their feelings. They should well, be I, on the jury for voir dire than any other part. I think you're right. I think the two things are one, getting them to talk. But I think the other thing that goes along with that is getting them to be brutally, ruthlessly honest because people want to be nice. They don't right. say, hey, I think you're a an ambulance chasing lawyer. I hate all lawyers and I don't think your client should get any money or whatever. It's the real things that you want to hear you don't hear. I had a case where there was a medical malpractice case in the county and I did voir dire all morning and we took the lunch break and there was one guy about, I'd say he was about in his mid forties and a business owner. And I could just tell. Arms crossed, Claire. Arms crossed. I just, he was bad news. He was number one on my list to take off with a, with a for cause. And he hadn't said a word. He hadn't said a damn word, yeah. the whole thing. And I pointed questions at him. He just kind of shrugged them. Nope, nope, no issue. I got no problem, like that kind of stuff. And then finally, after thinking about it over lunch, I came back and went right at him because he's getting off anyway. And I said, I don't know what, remember his name, Mr. Smith. I said, Mr. Smith, I've been thinking about you over the lunch break. And I said, I just have this feeling by the way you're looking at me, you know, that you got strong feelings. You don't like what I'm saying or doing or me or whatever. And then finally, I had a question. I just said, just what's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about right now? What is in your head? And he said, he, he was a med mal death case. And he said, Mr. Simon, I'll tell you, if you can prove to me that these doctors were negligent and caused the death of this girl, I would give them $10. And that's what he said. Wow. And I said, thank you. <laughs> and what happened was it opened to everybody. Yeah. There were 15 more people who said yeah. similar things, not as strongly. But here's the dichotomy. It's easier for me because if I have a plaintiff juror, more likely than defense conservative jurors, they don't want to be on that jury anyway. So they're going to talk to me. And so they're going to say all kinds of things to get off the jury because that's more important to them than yeah. staying on the yeah. jury and helping the plaintiff. And they got no yeah. problem admitting openly that they're going to be very sympathetic. Yes, towards of the course, because <laughs> that's a nice thing to right. say. Yeah. Whereas some of the defense jury jurors want to hide it and want to stay there for the week so they can do what they're going to do. Yeah. That's it's, tough. It's tough. It is tough. And we, the last one we tried two, two month, a month ago, two months ago, med mal case in the county, we deliberated on a Saturday. We went in on a Saturday by agreement with everybody. We did close in the morning and Debbie, the jury was out. They went out about 11 and they were out for eight hours Ooh. on a Saturday, and the weather was nice. Wow. And I thought we came in, and I tried it with my daughter. You'd have said, February, yeah, right? Like yeah, and I, said, and I said, Mary, you know what? Whatever, they're going to be out 90 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, maybe 90, that's it, okay? And the hours pass, and we get notes, and we get more. And finally, it's 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, and a, a mistrial was granted because they just had a, they notes, a note said we can't oh, agree on anything. Yeah. And we talked to the jurors afterwards, and it was eight to four in our favor from the first minute, and it was eight to four after eight hours. Wow! And not one person changed their wow. view. And I'm telling, saying this because a couple of the jurors that talked to us, they emailed Mary, my daughter, and they would Mary talked to them, and they said that the, a couple of the people who just wouldn't vote for, and it was a good case, we should have won the case, but the, the couple of the jurors that didn't just couldn't find against the doctors it was for reasons that clearly in in one of them said we shouldn't be second guessing people in you know who are doc yeah yeah and was this a small I, town 
No, it was Clayton. Oh, come Clayton. on. Yeah, it was in Clayton. And then no. somebody else was... I've had jurors tell me that yeah. even cases I won, the two people back there said no layperson should ever be second-guessing a right. doctor. Right. In other words, it was no matter what the evidence is, they didn't kind of vote for it. And those were things we covered right. in Vore Dyer. They but, didn't tell but my point is that they didn't spit it out. When we were asking them, they weren't... No, but they you had, had experts. Yeah, Light yeah. people are just... Yeah, no, it was... Evaluate uh, the evidence. And then one of them, they asked, what do you think, uh, what would you need to see in the case to consider fault, fault on the doctors? And one of them said maybe that if they didn't go to medical school or didn't have the proper training or... It was just a thing where it doesn't matter what the evidence is. We've They made up their mind about our case before they left their house. That's and, a common... Yeah. That's a common And you know what? Worry. Then what do you do? You, I think... That's I think that's the best opportunity to be creative because you're talking you're you have to talking find. to the jurors you, and you're not always going to find them but you, you've got to do everything. What are some demonstratives, Debbie? Have you used any demonstratives in Vordire? No, and I don't. I do yeah. this yeah. in Vordire. I never, and that means I guess yeah. we're on the radio, oh, yeah. so I should say I look them in the eye. Yeah. I'm and because and the reason that I do that is because I've seen so many times people get all caught up in their demonstratives. And they aren't paying attention to the jury. I don't want yeah. to do that. Yeah, I, you miss so, something. Uh huh. And like for example, I'm going to miss the people who didn't talk. Yeah. If I'm doing, if I'm worried about some demonstrative, I want to hear what they think. And, and you know what? It's not what they say; it's how they exactly. say it. Exactly. How they're exactly. looking at you and yeah. their posture when That's their arms right. are crossed. So, so I don't. Their eyes. I rarely use yeah. anything like that in in front of a jury. But I will tell you, I always talk to everybody because I've had one juror who didn't talk in, in jury selection, who didn't speak English, and we didn't know it until the verdict. <laughs> and then I have another one who didn't talk, and he just sit there the whole time and was disagreeing at us, and everybody thought he was so friendly, it was going to be great. The second one was some woman who later, she didn't talk during jury selection. We, I didn't think we were going to get to her, so I, but we did because we had a couple strikes I didn't anticipate. And she was on the jury, and she called me afterwards by that time, I knew who it was. She called me afterwards and told me I was the devil. And like, <laughs> I think something was wrong. <laughs> but anyway, I talked to all of them. Now. You must act different around other people than you do around us, Dad. No, I don't. She was mad because I think she juror thought you ran over the, the plaintiff at trial. Another lady called you and the this devil. One, this one, she thought the man was attractive. He had a crush on him, and he was attractive, yeah. very attractive plaintiff, and she thought he could be her next boyfriend. And she thought I was oh. the devil. Cause I was and you didn't cover all that in one diary? <laughs> I did not. What is your best approach for urging jurors to be forthright and to speak up? Well, how do you do it in a word hour? Is there something about my voice that for some reason they talk to me? I'll ask them not yes or no questions. I try to get them to talk rather than answer what I want to hear. I'll say, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? But jurors generally will talk to me and they'll tell me answers. And I'll, and so it's tough, but sometimes I'll also use this guy. So I'll say, now you see Mr. Simon over here, who's juror number four. Remember he talked about such and such. What do you think about what he said? So I, that's my only and the best advice on that. But I do think because, maybe because I'm female, maybe because I have this voice, they talk to me. You don't call yourself Aunt Debbie. No. Try to get them. No, no, but I do wear those big old tacky pins and earrings, clip earrings, even at this in 2023. I wear those and make them think they're in church. Because <laughs> I'm dressed in their grandmother's jewelry. Well, that's creative. I, yeah, I do. Absolutely. I, I start yeah. trial not with the wild jewelry, but jewelry. But if it goes on for five days, I am coming in some grandmama jewelry the fifth day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What, some of the other things, like I, I was thinking of a case I had, and it was against the 
park. It was a parking lot issue. No, it was a ra- racetrack. It was a racetrack across the river. Yeah. And my client stepped in a pothole at night, and she'd had a couple drinks and, and hurt her ankle, broke her ankle or whatever. And the, and the parking lot was a mess. It was potholes all over the place. And so what I did was I found out who the person was that took care of the track for the horses. And they didn't know why the hell I wanted to take it. I took a corporate oh, demo. Fantastic. And about 10 minutes in, the other lawyers started getting the point of it. I was going through all the meticulous work and labor and how many people they have to smooth out that track and make sure there's no divots or anything in it and what they do when it rains and all this stuff to take care of it for the horses. So the horses. Yeah, I see what saw where that was going. That's fantastic. But it, uh, and again, I probably got that idea sitting at a red light on the way home thinking about something. That's a that's great. That's a great one. Debbie, let me go back to the idea of a trial as a play that you're putting yeah. on a presentation. Yeah. What are some of the things that you think of in terms of maybe order of calling witnesses or when demonstratives come in or your tone, how you would present maybe even in, in examination of witnesses, much less cross-exam yeah. or argument? What are those intangibles? Are, do you consciously think of those? I do. Oh, yeah, I do. Can you talk a bit about Sure, of course. Of course. With respect to presentation, I have learned through the years something and that I still have a hard time believing, but the studies continue and continue to show this is true, that reading the same opening or the same closing, a female versus male is going to be declared as shrill where he was powerful and convincing. It's just the way people are. And so I have learned I cannot get too aggressive in the courtroom. Jurors don't like that. And I just think that is a gender difference that we have to learn to work with. And so I have learned to continue to be calm (laughs) or to try to be calm and to try to be nice, where that's not particularly what I want to do in some situations, but I have to do it. And so that's one thing that I consider Another thing that I consider is there have been these decades where people come up with different ideas about what they want to do in trial. Sometimes they always want to start with the defendant. That's I welcome that. That is my favorite thing when that happens because it gets my story out first because I get to cross that defendant, and that defendant now is going to tell the story before anybody else does. But I never understand why that really happens. There are some good times when that happens where somebody admits liability and you're going to put them on there to admit liability and then get them off and because there's not a whole lot else they can say. But many times they people just do it rotely because somebody else put them first, and so now it's time for me to put them on first. Or I'm going to leave the plaintiff out of the courtroom all week. And if you've got a plaintiff who is severely disabled, who we all know couldn't sit in the courtroom all week, that's fine. But I've seen it happen where you have, in fact, I'll just tell you it happened specifically in a case where a 20-something-year-old young lady was in town for the trial from out of town where she worked and never never missed a day of work, and she came in, and she came in and didn't come to the courtroom at all, came in to be introduced and do her own testimony, but didn't come in the courtroom at all. And so I thought, how hard she was a party. She was the plaintiff. She was wow. the plaintiff. There was a death in the car, but that was not about what this was about. She was the plaintiff. Darling, beautiful girl, totally fine. She hadn't been fine. She'd been injured, but this was years later. So I thought, okay, how do I creatively be nice to her? Because that's a big deal for me now. I have to be trying to be nice. And 
point out the fact that she's in St. Louis. And so I got up and I said, uh, so we started chatting and I said, are you nervous? And she said, yeah. And I said, let's talk about something else. And I said, I understand you're getting married soon. She said, yeah. I said, have you, ha have you been able to pick out where it's going to be? Yeah, it's going to be here in St. Louis. And I said, but you're living in Boston now or wherever it was. I don't make that up. But, and she said, yeah, I'm living in Boston now. And so I said, but you were able to go see such and such place. And she said, yeah. I said, is it beautiful? I haven't been there yet. We talk a lot about that for the next few minutes. Then I go back to the accident. We finish what we're, of course they know what I'm saying. She's been really busy while she's been here. She went out, planned her wedding. She got her dress. She saw her venue. She ordered her food. They've been sitting in the jury box all week. Yeah. And you've been sitting here. I never made the argument. I didn't have to. But yeah, I, I really wanted to make a big deal about her not being there without being mean. And that's hard. It's hard, y'all, when you can't be mean as a lawyer. <laughs> it's hard. Even the plaintiff usually turns out poorly most of the time, I think, when you're mean. And depending on the witness, if it's somebody who's asking for it, an expert or something. That's one thing. But the cases involving doctors and nurses, and be, I think you're always better off taking the high road, being professional, being... You've taught me that. Yeah. I have watched you take a lot of witnesses, and you're really good at it. You don't have to be. And I'll tell you, when you get riled up is closing, which is when they expect you to get riled up. You need to have passion. And you're not riled up mad at somebody. You're riled up because you're concerned about the damage that's been done to your client. And so I've tried to copy that, frankly. Well, you know what? I, honestly, I, 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 it doesn't even dawn on me. It just happens in the moment. nicer than I yeah. No, that, Debbie, that is not true. <laughs> Tim's here to tell you. Tim can tell you you're wrong on that one. <laughs> Either that or you're a really good actress. <laughs> oh, you pretty much know me. Yeah. You pretty much know me. You've seen it. You just forgave it. <sighs> That's all right. You're both nicer than me, so it's okay. <laughs> I'll agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I will definitely go along with that. I've, that's what I've done the first, how long have you been with me? 10, 13, 13 years, years, I think. And I spent the first 12 and a half years saying, Tim, calm down, <laughs> sit down, keep your voice down, just relax, It'll don't worry about it. So the creative process also encompasses writing. And I think of myself as, that's my more my That's company. your area, yeah. I follow Brian Garner, who his works on how to write, and he divides the process into these personas. And the one would be, he would call the madman and then later on you get to an architect and then a carpenter and then Fun. a judge and he says very pointedly don't combine that madman face in other words any idea is a good idea don't combine that with the judge face tell the judge to get the hell out of the room when you're trying to think of ideas so it's a brainstorming session it should be just wild anything that occurs to you put it down and have it on your list and i think that's a good idea and I sometimes consciously do that, but I violate that rule a lot. You think of an idea and you go, ah, that'll never work. And then you, you throw an idea out because you're killing your you own ideas. Later. It's like having the, your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time yeah. and trying to drive a car. And so I, I try to do that when writing is to have these moments where you're just throwing it out there, putting everything on the paper. I know it's not as easy to do in lifetime trials, but, and of course you got to change gears a lot. I'm using the car metaphor here. But there's a there, there's something to be gained, I think, by, by keeping the judge out of the room when you're brainstorming. Carol Dweck is a psychologist who talks about two mindsets for approaching getting things done. One, one would be the growth mindset or the fixed mindset. I hope I don't mangle this. But they divided kids in classrooms into two groups, and they took a test, and they complimented the kids in the two groups 
who got the same scores, but they complimented one of them by saying, you're so smart. You did great. You're really smart. And the other ones, they said, you did great. You worked really hard. And it made a significant difference in how those kids approach different tasks in the future. And I'm thinking of this, this is one of John's quotes. He says, the best cure for anxiety is hard work. Absolutely. And I, That's excellent. And I love that because it's not like you're trying to get the perfect answer anymore. You're grinding it out. You're just relentlessly pursuing, exploring, processing, and, in, and it's an evolution as opposed to figuring out the right answer. It's not math. Where'd you come up with that, John? Probably stole it from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> During the madman stage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it, isn't it the biggest travesty to have somebody who has a ton of talent but doesn't work hard enough? Oh, my God. So they don't properly use it. That is true. I would agree with that. And that's where I tell the students and the younger lawyers, that's the preparation is the great equalizer. Experience-wise, somebody might be a little smarter. Somebody's going to be smarter than you. Somebody's going to have more experience. That's exactly right. Somebody's going to know the judge better than you or whatever. And, uh, you know, preparation is the great equalizer. Maybe we could talk a bit about narrative. John, I know you've had cases where your story changed and shifted as you're approaching trial. And I'd like to open it up to Debbie, too. Is like, how much time do you consciously say, how do I frame this case? Yes, I do that a lot. That's important to me. Because we, all too often on the defense side, we let the plaintiff frame the narrative. We tell everything from the plaintiff's perspective. We're talking about the plaintiff's damages, the plaintiff's injuries, what's happening with the plaintiff, and nobody ever hears the perspective of the defendant. What happened to him that day, getting up, what he sees, what she or he is doing, what's on their mind that day, which can be really important for empathy. And so I do think about it, particularly in for opening. How This is probably one subset of that task is personifying a business. So how do you think that through? I tell you, it's hard because I can talk about it. But as we've been talking about telling the jury that they don't really see it or hear it, you have to put a face on the business. You have to. When it starts in jury selection, when you're talking about the business as the folks that are at the company, as opposed to the company you're talking about, does anybody here know any of the folks over there? And will you treat the folks from there like you treat the plaintiff, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think it's really powerful with smaller businesses, family businesses, where you, how did this, my father started this. Right, me too. And the kids work here. And my, that's something that is, it, jurors have a tough time with that because they, they think there's some insurance. They're worried that there might be not enough insurance. Right. And, and that now, you can't do that as easily with General Motors right. or, or Apple <laughs> it's or, true. or Monsanto or whatever. But I think if it's mid-size, especially the smaller family businesses, it's always a big concern for me. Yeah. yeah. It is. It's a concern, and it should be, because that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about everything other than they ain't thinking about what you want them to think about. They're thinking yeah. that you said you never talk to jurors, and that's one of the reasons I'm, like, reluctant to talk to them, because... I'm like, for God's sake, that's how they got to that result. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm like, they got to the result I wanted, but they didn't pay attention. I know. Anything. I don't want to hear. <laughs> exactly. If I win, I never want to yeah, talk to exactly. anyone. If I lose, I don't want to pay attention hear. to anything I said. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they didn't believe it. Yeah. Went around, five, went, you know, this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I won despite right. everything yeah. I did. Exactly. Despite <laughs> everything I did, they won. Debbie, let me ask you this. I, I, you know, in most of our cases, we take a corporate rep depot, and we might take several other the defendant's employee, corporate witnesses, whatever. And I always want, and I know John does too, typically we want the corporate rep live. We want to also 
call them and probably in our case, unless we didn't get anything good out of them, then maybe not. And I've had a few occasions in my career where the corporate rep and the companies from out of state and the lawyer says, they're not coming, they're not going to be here, I won't bring them. And then they have nobody sitting at their table. And I always have found that to be like crazy to, makes, to have no face for the corporation. And then we're, I'm playing the video of the corporate rep to the jury and like they have nobody at the table and nobody's there for the company the whole time. Are there ever circumstances well, where you have? This, they get to pick who they want to well, bring, for God's sake. You're not stuck with a witness that you have to have them sit at the table. Why wouldn't you have somebody from that corporation's table? It doesn't make any sense. I, and it may be, you may decide, depending on what the facts are and where everybody's from and who they are, you may decide you want some low-level employee who is great at customer service. You know what? Who yeah. knows who you want? But you've got somebody, somebody who looks really nice. <laughs> yeah, acts really exactly. nice the whole time. It acts nice. the jury. Exactly. <laughs> Debbie, have you ever had a plaintiff firm call that person that you brought who thought they were window dressing, but they... Yeah. Yes, I have. And it's never worked out for the plaintiff. But I've seen situations where it has. And you've got to get them ready. you got to be creative about, here's what could happen to you. But... If you call and you try to ask that person questions about the company, that person's going to say, oh, I'm not the person to talk about that. That's going to be so-and-so. I don't know that information, but here's what I do know. you got to get them prepped because it could be devastating. I, we're talking about that being creative, and I think one of the things that I see most often that that I think is a not good practicing law, not it's just a mistake, is not adjusting to what's going on around you, with either with a witness or during the trial. And I was described trying a case like like trying to stand up in a canoe and paddle across a lake. Okay, you got to lean this way and that way <laughs> and lean this way. That's and good. Certain attorneys, not many of them, but some of them will go in with, and this is their outline, and by God, this is what they're going to ask. The building could be on fire, and they're going to be asking the same. They don't respond to what somebody might give them a gift yeah. on the stand or just the whole approach. I had a case where it was a driver, and it was a truck. It was a delivery truck. And the driver, it was his fault. He didn't yield or ran the stop sign and hit my client. And he was severely injured. And this guy was the nicest guy you ever want to meet, the driver. he I liked the guy. He was very sorry for what happened. He just was somebody I liked. Everybody was going to like him. And it was a problem. And so what we did, not while in the workup of the case, but in opening, I knew if I was the defense attorney, that's all I'd be talking about. This guy was in the military. He was in the yeah. army for 30 yeah. years. He was retired. He was a sergeant, likable guy. And then he was his first week at this job, and he he ran the stop sign. And so what I did is, through discovery, we figured out how many deliveries they gave him each day and how he had he couldn't go home without delivering them all. And I mean, you're 1030 hitting him against and, the company. Yeah, and so... I just, in opening, I completely changed the whole thing. And I didn't take any of the depots. It was Erica here in the office took them. And she listed it all, all the information. And they were just assuming we're going to go after this guy for, it was just a run in the stop sign. That was what it was, or the yield, failure to yield. And so I got up, and the first thing I said was, you're going to like this man. I like him. Everybody likes him. He's a good guy. But wait till you hear what the company put him through every day. And I talked about the number of deliveries. He had 135 deliveries. That's he great. had to deliver them all. Yeah. And the defense lawyer got up in opening and literally didn't have any 
didn't know what to say because it was a completely different case. So they followed yeah. what they were going to yes. say, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, and That's I just, weird everything he said, everything I knew he was going to say, I said it. Two and, ships yeah, passing in right. the Yeah. And I said, you know what? This guy is, he was put in these circumstances, and he'll admit to you that he ran it, but wait, are you going to hear the whole story and the full story? And he's, they're responsible for his, all this kind of stuff. And by, by, I think by Thursday of the week, we ended up settling the case. Funny. That's because funny. it was, and again, that was my problem. And we had to figure out a creative way to, to, I figured everybody likes the guy. You know? See it a lot with medical where a defense attorney will think they've got an issue on the medical, which is a non-issue and they don't get that it's a non-issue. And then three or four days into the trial, they're still talking about the non-issue when nobody else has mentioned the things we've con- <laughs> And I've done that, and you've seen that in cases. Why do we just do that? In- oh, we just did it in the case we tried, the one I was talking about that, that my daughter and I tried, Mary tried. One of the things, too, that I see a lot that I can't figure out, one of them, I agree with Tim, not having somebody at trial, I think, is a big mistake. Me, too. But from the plaintiff's side, sometimes there's an excuse for it. If you've got a case about a kid... The parents should probably be there, but the jury doesn't expect. Yeah, no, I just threw her. If you have a psychiatric, like that psychiatric case I tried, I asked him, is it okay if she's not here? This will re-traumatize her. And everybody went, yeah, did you try to make her come? And I went, I, no, I said it was up to her. Sometimes it's okay. But I like, like the things I see more often is when I deal with a lot of experts in cases, way more than we need, way more than the other side needs. Everybody's got too, too damn many experts. And... One of the things that you see, your expert's not going to give you everything and not give up anything. It never happens. And sometimes, a lot more often than you'd think, they give up a lot. Or I have an expert, I'm questioning the other side's expert, and they, like, they're a causation expert, and they admit causation in a case where causation's disputed. And I've told other lawyers, we're not going to see them. At, they're not going to bring them at trial. The best we'll have is read the depot. And they're there. they call all of them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they, like... I can't fit. Why would you? Am I missing something? <laughs> well, I suspect it's because they, they paid these people. They don't want to yeah. explain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they paid them. That they wasted money. Debbie, I got news for them. I would pay them from that point on. If they want to come in, I'll just say, "Don't worry about it. Bring them. Bring them on in." Exactly. If they don't want to bring them in, tell them I'll pay for them. No problem. That's what I'm guessing. Could you talk about your conscious collaboration with your your team, whoever that is, as you're getting ready for trial? And do you have strategy sessions where you talk about? I wish I did, Eric. We're all so busy all the time. I would love to sit down with them with every case and strategize, but we don't have the time for that. But that would be ideal. But I do it on cases that are ready to go to trial or cases I know are going to try go to trial as soon as I see them. And I'll tell you, I strategize with my associates. That's which is really a combination of partners and associates. I have. Oh, I think I probably have nine attorneys working directly for me at this point. Maybe more than that. But they're various ages, various everything. They're all across the board. And they have really different opinions. And so I like to hear them. But the best people I like to ask are my staff. Well, the assistants, paralegals, and my favorite, I probably shouldn't tell this, but I will. My favorite time I ever talked to them is I got into a case that had been going on in a different state for a long time. And I got into this case because the insurance carrier just said, this is not going well. And we just need somebody to come in and look and see what do we need to do. And I thought the whole time it is a lack of humanization of the defendant, which was a target defendant. 
And so I'll get in, and it was about a pork manufacturer. And they send me the deposition, which was recorded, of this pork manufacturer. And I start, I look at it, I start playing it, and I'm like, no, this cannot be right. They did not have this happen. I call in my, I have two assistants in parallel, call them in, and I look at them, and I say, I'm going to play a couple minutes of this. Tell me what's wrong. And I play it, and they looked at me, and they said, he looks just like a pig. <laughs> and the reason he looked like a pig is they had this man who is white hair, just like I me, mean, white, and he has this string hanging of hair down here like a curl. He had a pink shirt on, and he was round-faced. It was awful. I said, they have allowed this man to be presented, and he looks just like a pig about a pork cake. Oh, it was hilarious, and they got it like that. And my associates, so I call those guys. And said, no, none of them. They were like, I don't think he's doing that bad. It was so funny. But my point is, everybody has different perspectives. So I thought, okay, I'm going to fix this by making this man wear a blue shirt. So I walked in to meet him. Maybe slick his hair back. <laughs> exactly. So I walked in to meet him, and it was a room as big as this with all of these attorneys in it. All were men, just me. They were mad as wet hen that I was coming in at the last minute. And I met him, and I said, Oh, you look pretty in that color. <laughs> you had a blue shirt on. I said, that is your color. It makes your eyes look really good. You need to wear that more often. So that's how. Problem solved. It was hysterical. <laughs> that was a simple problem, easy fix. But Wow. <laughs> Great way to end these episodes. We've been talking to Debbie Champion. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming, Debbie. Oh, it's been fun. These have been episodes on creativity and brainstorming. So thank you. To the audience for joining us. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beef. I'm Tim Corona. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>